God in his sovereign purposes and providential care will intervene in our world. He will bring to an end evil. He will bring to an end manipulation and control. And he will bring his purposes and will and plan to prosper. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. As many of you know, we have been steadily working our way through the book of Revelation. Last Sunday morning, we were in chapter 17, and very obviously, chapter 18 flows right out of 17, and they're almost working tandem with each other. And so we're breaking into chapter 18, chapter 17. The Apostle John has been writing about God at work in history past, history present, and history to come. And in chapter 18, he is envisaging the culmination of all of history when Christ returns and brings to an end the corruption and evil in our world. And he begins at verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird, for all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. And if you can jump over to verse 11, John continues, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and bodies and the souls of men. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. As you know, we hear about the fall of Babylon. Now, if you're asking me, Richard, can you pin down a particular country, a particular nation, a regime, a culture, a society who you would immediately identify as Babylon? I can't. Because when John is writing, he writes about what was, what is, and what is still to come. But it's helpful to use it as a broad umbrella term for rebellion and contempt of God. And that's what's going on here. And in chapter 18... I'm trying to provide a helpful thumbnail sketch of all that takes place. John highlights for us the distinguishing marks of a 
culture in decay. If you're taking notes this morning, that's worth getting down. That's the overall theme of the chapter, the distinguishing marks of a culture in decay. And as John begins, he begins verse 2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries, the kings of the earth. In other words, the whole earth has committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. And what John is saying is this. He's saying history that was, is, and is to come. There will be periods in all of history where the moral and spiritual standards laid down by God will be minimized and marginalized and pushed to one side, and they will be forgotten. And I think history tells us this, that spiritual and moral erosion is often slow and subtle and silent. We wake up one morning and think, how on earth did this occur? And that's what John is saying right here. And John goes on to be very particular, and he says this. He talks about sensuality and immorality. And John goes on, and we saw a little of it in verse 13, where he listed a whole list of produce and products. And John is saying those who are making and selling these produce and products, and please hear me when I say this, John is not against an entrepreneurial spirit. He's not saying it's wrong to set up a small business and, of course, be involved in manufacturing and where there's such a thing as an honest business. John is not coming down in that at all. What John is saying is this, that one of the distinguishing marks of a culture in decay is when they take products and produce and use immorality and sensuality to sell those products. And his point is this, that when immorality and sensuality becomes accepted in a society or a culture, and then it's used to sell products and produce, please hear this, that it begins to infect the entire culture. And once immorality and sensuality is accepted, it is then celebrated. And once it is celebrated, products are sold on the basis of this, that they are appealing, exciting, intriguing, and unless your lifestyle is like this, you somehow don't measure up. You are old-fashioned, out of touch, archaic, and you have nothing to say. The folk, when God gave to us sensuality and the expression of love between a man and a woman in the bonds of marriage, it was one of his greatest gifts, greatest gifts. And when it's taken and used to sell products and produce, when it is used in movies, in video clips, to sell CDs and put, help bring people to the top of the pop charts, we need to ask some serious questions. Now, lest you think I am coming across as someone who's prudish and priggish, please hear this. Please hear this. 
Last fall, we had as part of one of our Sunday morning services a presentation by a group called Switch. And Switch are an upstate Christian organization who work with young ladies, and some of them married moms, who have been caught up in the human sex trade. In other words, they are held in captivity for, and I don't need to go into the details, I think you've got it. And they have, over the last five or six years, worked with over 700 ladies in their 20s and 30s, have managed to free 65 of them, have them restored to their families, and are now living a normal life. Folks, we would tend to think that happens in places like Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York City. But please hear me. The corridor between Atlanta and Charlotte is rife with it. So much so, the Greenville Police Department have an officer full-time to deal with human sex traffic. This is not happening somewhere else at a distance, and it's no big deal. And the ladies involved will tell you this. In fact, last November, we had their gala evening, and one of those young ladies talked about her own life and the incredible cruelty, not to mention the emotional and psychological damage that after nine years, she's only now beginning to put behind her that she will tell you this, that pornography, sexuality, and immorality are tied indirectly to that trade. And here is John in the first century saying it is corrosive and toxic, and Christian folks need to set moral and spiritual standards that say enough, because the culture and society will not say that. That's the point John's making. And we know it to be true in our own day and age. And we need to say that this is one of the distinguishing marks of a culture and a society in decay. And notice where he goes next. Jump over to verse 11 that we read. And towards the end, when he gave us the whole list of produce and products, he talked of costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense. Notice how he ends. He ends with horses and carriages and bodies and souls of men. What is John talking about there? He's talking about slavery, not just the immoral, sensual kind, but slavery and empires and regimes and governments who have been built on the backs of slave workers. That's the point he's making. He's making the point of human injustice. Now, you may be sitting there and saying, Richard, I understand it. I get it. The point's made. But we live in a 21st century, not a first century. We don't encourage slavery today. It is outlawed. It is outlawed here in the USA, but not in every country. But John is also making a wider point, and it's this. That as Christian people, we believe that every individual is made in the image of God, and each individual heart and mind and soul has intrinsically value and worth beyond measure. Now, let me say it again. Each and every heart and mind and soul has value 
beyond measure. Two weeks ago, we celebrated and had a spotlight on what we called Sanctity of Life Sunday. And Sanctity of Life Sunday, we were trying to make the point that each life is of value and worth is significant. And last October, I was thrilled to see this. The Department of Health and Human Services published their next four-year plan from 2018 through 2022. And this is what they said. They said, the Department of Health and Human Services accomplishes its mission through programs and initiatives that cover a wide spectrum of activities. They then go on to say, servicing and protecting Americans at every stage of life, beginning at conception. That is, as far as I can work out, and I did a little research this past week, the first time, and I could be wrong on this, but it seems and appears to be the first time that a government department have said clearly and unequivocally, there is life in the womb. Well, let me suggest this. John is writing to seven congregations in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Today, you can go back and see some of the ruins of these churches and the towns and cities where they were. But they lived in cities. And John fully understood this, that when there is a congregation of the people of God at the heart of a city, they have a particular calling. And they live in a day and age that gives them privilege and opportunity. And for us, in the 21st century, there are some definite parallels and similarities. In the first three chapters, in fact, the first four and a half chapters of Revelation, John speaks directly to these congregations. And in one of them, the church at Sardis, he says to them this, I know who you are. I know your history. I know where you've come from. I'm grateful for all that God has been doing in your life as individuals and in the congregation. And then he adds this, but you must wake up. He's saying, look around you. Ask yourself, are you having more of an influence on the culture and society around, or is it having more of an influence on you? Be aware. Pay attention. Secondly, he says to the church at Laodicea, he says to them, again, I know your history, I know your background, I know what God has done in the past, but you have become lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. Wake up. And then one of the other churches, the church in Philadelphia, not in the northeast, a little further to the east, and he says to them, God has given you an open door that no man can shut. You have an opportunity. You have a responsibility. And to these seven congregations, John is saying to them this, become the people God is calling you to be in your own context, in your own day and age. And that is the same with us. And the question is this, if there are from scriptures distinguishing marks of a culture in decay, what is our job in the 21st century? Well, our job is to say this, 
that whenever we hear of young ladies and young moms in their 20s and 30s captured in the human sex trade, we are going to do something about it. That's our first job. Whenever there are families in the developing world who are living way, way below the poverty line, that we as a congregation are willing to step up and say we will make a difference. Yes, it's going to be costly to raise $60,000. Yes, it's going to be difficult to give a couple of hours that weekend and pack foodstuffs, but we care. We want to make a difference. We are the church of God who believes that we can influence society rather than society influence us because as a congregation, we do not get our moral and spiritual standards from the culture and society. We get them from the Scripture. We believe that every single life has worth and intrinsic value. We believe that the gospel is as powerful today as it was back then. We believe if we are to be the people of God, he's calling us to be, there are things we must do and things we must be involved in. And John in summary forum says this, that if you are to be the church God is calling you to be, you have a gospel-shaped identity. Now, what does that mean, a gospel-shaped identity? It means this. First of all, it means we care about the moral standards of our culture and our society. Secondly, it means we're willing to step up. And thirdly, and this is the thing I really need you to hear, that if we as individuals are to love our city and pray for our city and care for the people who live in this city. We are caring for a people who are living in the fastest growing city east of the Mississippi. Our city fathers tell you they cannot keep up with construction. And if we are to genuinely be a church in a downtown setting, the best thing we can do for our city in this day and age and in the generation to come is to have a gospel-shaped identity where Christ and Christ alone shapes our passions, our desires, our spiritual values, the things that define us. Now, folks, please hear me when I say this, and this is extremely subtle, so please listen. When someone comes to First Press for the first time and they leave, they may well say, wasn't the worship spectacular? Do you remember when they prayed, they actually spoke to someone? Do you remember when they talked about their faith and the intensity and the compassion that they had. It's remarkable. But if that's all they say, they're missing the point. Because we become the focus of the discussion. We are in the spotlight and not Christ and not His love and not His grace. And that's what we need to be known for. We need to be a church with a gospel-shaped identity that says this, you are loved so much greater than you could ever imagine. And despite your history, despite your sins, despite treating him with indifference, he loves you and longs that you would come to know him and be 
touched by him and transformed by him and grow in your relationship with him. That's why it's a gospel-shaped identity. It's not a worship-shaped identity. It's not a passion-shaped identity. All these things are important, but it begins with him. And if you are here this morning for the first time, let me encourage you in your understanding to know this, that the single most important thing about the Christian faith is this, having a living, vibrant, growing relationship with Christ. There is nothing more important, nothing more thrilling And it happens when we, as a congregation, are determined to have a gospel-shaped identity. Now, what else is John saying? And let me try and wrap it all up with this. That he's also calling us to be a heart-shaping community. And by that, it means this. It means that two-year-olds and five-year-olds and seven-year-olds and 92-year-olds and 95s and 97-year-olds are welcome on Sunday morning, are welcome throughout the week, because this is a place where we will genuinely seek to engage with God week by week by week by week. We will seek to put Him first and foremost every time. If someone living in this, this downtown area or has moved into this downtown area and come here for worship, that is what they will be exposed to because there is nothing better, nothing greater. That heart-shaped community does what? It provides a secure spiritual home. It provides teaching and learning direct from the Scripture. We expect each other to grow in our faith. We expect people who worship on Sunday during the week will get into a small Bible study group, a men's breakfast on a Thursday morning, a ladies' group on a Thursday afternoon where you are growing together. You're learning in community. You are holding each other to mutual accountability and growing and developing in our faith, being the people He is calling us to be. Now, why is that important? Because if we love our city, we will offer and encourage the work of the gospel impacting our society and our culture. Because folks, please hear me when I say this. There have been times in my life when I have been pessimistic about the future, but those days are over. There have been times when I have been more critical than I ought to be, and those days are over because of this, because that chapter 18 tells us this, that God in His sovereign purposes and providential care will intervene in our world. He will bring to an end evil. He will bring to an end manipulation and control, and He will bring His purposes and will and plan to prosper. And our job is to do what? Is to live in a society and to show them there is another way. It's been so easy in the past for churches to throw stones at our culture and throw stones at our society, but we are taking a different route. We are saying if there's a need, we are willing to step up. If we disagree with moral and spiritual values of that culture, of course we're going to say so, but we're also going to show there is another way and a better way, and it is Christ-like and godly, and that's where we need to be going. 
Why? Because we are ordinary, everyday people seeking to live out our faith. We are the secretaries and the social workers and the doctors and the dieticians and the lawyers and the lecturers. We are the homemakers and the construction workers. We are the people of God who have said that we want a gospel-shaped identity. We want a heart-shaping community We have been here for 170 years, or at least we'll begin our 171st at the end of this month, and we're grateful for all that God has done in the past, but we cannot live there, and we cannot remain there, and that's not where we get our identity. Why? Because we are a people whose dreams are greater than our memories. We're focused on a generation yet unborn, and we ones of four and five will grow up in this church giving thanks to God because you were faithful. It's not enough to highlight the distinguishing marks of a deteriorating culture. It's not enough. But we have to say there is a better way, and it's Christ's way, and it's a way of love and grace and prayer and purity in life and holding on to the sanctity of that life. And to say that in the will and grace of God, we can make a difference. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture this morning. Thank you for the challenge it brings to us. Enable us, please, to be men and women of Christ with a gospel-shaped identity who live in a heart-shaping community, enable us, please, to fully surrender to the rule and reign of Christ in our life each day and to live for Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sign up now for summer camps at First Presbyterian Church. Summer at First is a place where campers have fun as they make friends and learn about God. Camp counselors help build strong character in the lives of young people through daily Bible stories, music, games, crafts, and prayer. Our ministry is available for ages three months through rising sixth grade. More information at firstpressgreenville.org.